Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. And I apologize to the folks online. It looks like we temporarily got kicked off of the online stream, but we're back and hopefully... There were like 10 people online, now there's zero. <laughs> uh, that is just crazy. And, and that's what, it, it, I apologize, there have been technical difficulties, not on our end, on the Facebook end, because other people using the same technology we're using, using different cameras, have been experiencing the same types of problems. So I apologize to you guys that are watching, if, if, if it usually happens once like it did, and then we're able to get back on. But... That being said, so last week uh, we started the book of Exodus uh, and then we watched in turmoil as people overran the capital and now we're going to talk about how God deals with governments that try to oppress people and you can't make this stuff up. This is why I love the Bible. When we start teaching through God's word, it, it just, he just makes everything work out in his time. Uh, so last week, um, hey Anna, how are you? Glad you're joining us. Last week I said this also. Um, as we're walking through the book of Exodus, I wanted to share different pieces of evidence that contribute to the fact that the book of Exodus to share uh, came from two uh, well-known archaeologists. One is Dr. Stephen Myers, uh, and the other one is Dr. Titus Kennedy. Uh, both, um, again, they're well-known uh, in the archaeological world. They are there are a lot of people that look at them and say, oh, well, you're Christian, though, so we don't respect you. And like we said, their, their thing is, we're digging up the same thing you're digging up. We're just showing how this ties in to the Word of God, All right? So one of the pieces of information and one of their biggest things is, hey, there is evidence that the Hebrew people, Israelites, were living in Egypt prior to the time of the Exodus. Because if you make this biblical claim that there was this mass exodus of millions of Israelite slaves from Egypt, then there should be some evidence that millions of Israelite people lived in Egypt. And they say, yeah, there's a lot of evidence. And some of that evidence is first in, uh, there's this thing, and you can Google this, uh, there's a document called the Brooklyn Papyrus. I don't remember if it's papyrus or papyrus, I just pronounce it papyrus. Uh, it's, it's largely a medical document, but it lists 37 slaves with Semitic, and Semitic is, is a way of saying Hebrew or Israelite names. Nine of those names were straight out of the Bible. So it shows, this is, again, this isn't 100% proof. Yes, this means it's true, but it's evidence to support the fact that, yeah, there was a large contingent of Israelite people living in Egypt prior to the Exodus. One of the other things uh, that they show is this particular document, this is the, 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 what I just call it, Brooklyn Papyrus. So it's not just something where they're saying, hey, this is just the Bible. They're saying, hey, there's this information outside of the Bible that was found in Egypt that kind of supports the claims that the Bible makes. Uh, so one of the other things they say is that they were doing an excavation, uh, or actually other people did the excavation. They didn't do it. Uh, but an excavation of the city of Ramses, which we're going to read about, is in the Bible. Uh, and they found Hebrew statues, pottery, and sheep from Canaan, the land of Canaan, 
in Egypt. Now, Egypt had a totally different culture, different way of life, and we're going to see the significance of the sheep when we, when we start looking through it. But there was a particular type of sheep that was only found in the land of Canaan. And then, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, this particular type of sheep is also in Egypt. It's like saying there's only this, this, this breed of horse found in this country, but then you find it in this other country, so there's some evidence that people from that country were in this country. You're going to see why the sheep is important in a minute. But also, at the tomb of, uh, I think it was a vizier or some important official named Reckmeyer, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, they found artwork showing Semitic slaves, not Egyptian slaves, specifically Hebrew and Israelite slaves, making bricks with mud and building buildings with it, which we're going to read in a minute, straight out of the Bible, where it says, hey, they, they took away the resources and said, hey, just make bricks with mud, which wasn't the normal practice at that time. So again, right out of the Bible, evidence showing that, yeah, these things that we talk about from Scripture actually line up with evidence from an archaeological standpoint that the Exodus is true. So now that we talked about that, let's actually look and see what the book of Exodus says. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Exodus chapter 1. And you guys that are online, I apologize, you may not have heard this before, uh, but the technical difficulties that keep booting us off, they're not on our end, so I apologize. Facebook having lots of technical difficulties, and it has been over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but turn to Exodus chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, for those of you in the room, there should be one in front of you, to the left of you, to the right of you, somewhere. Exodus chapter 1, uh, page 40, if you're using one of our Bibles. And we're going to start, even though we've read a couple of these verses last week, we're going to start with uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So the book of Exodus, again, like we said, starts by looking back at what had occurred in the past. But then in verse 6, uh, it says this, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And here's where the shift came in verse 8. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies to fight against us and leave the country. So uh, there's a new king, doesn't know the legacy that Joseph has left behind. And his viewpoint is, hey, there are more of them than us. So looking at a division, there are more of them than us. We've got to deal shrewdly with them. And that word shrewdly literally means wisely. So he thought that he was doing what was good for his people, which is what most leaders, even when they do stupid things, they think this is in the best interest of the people. Now, God, this is one of the reasons why we should be able to put our faith and trust in God. God knows all things. 
And everything that we're about to read, he told Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, and the rest whose names we just read. Uh, Abraham heard from God that, hey, what we're about to read, everything we're about to read is going to happen. And stay in Exodus, I'm going to put up uh, a verse from Genesis. Genesis chapter 15 says, as the sun was setting, Abram, this is who Abraham was, but before God called him Abraham, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and we know he meant Egypt, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward, they will come out with great possessions. So here, you know, leaders, government leaders think, hey, I need to do what's best for my people. Sometimes they do what's right. Sometimes they do absolutely stupid things. Whereas God is who we should trust because he knows all things. Uh, Drop down to verse 11. So this is what that king of Egypt had them do. So they, the Egyptians, put slave masters. That word means a gang of forced labor. Slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now, where it says to oppress them, that word oppress means to demean or to make low. Because of their fear of this other group of people who said there's more of them than us, they said, hey, we've got to demean them and humiliate them. So in verse 12, but the more they, the Egyptians were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. So that word dread means they came to loathe, despise, and to hate them. They made their lives bitter, that word means enraged, with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So basically, there was already hatred, and this made it worse. This made it so much worse, because what you had was an entire group of people enslaved because of fear and hatred. Now, the hatred started way before this, and it started just because they were different. Uh, Again, stay there. We're going to go back to Exodus in a minute. But in Genesis chapter 43, this is when Joseph, right, his brother Benjamin comes. He's finally reunited with all his brothers. He hasn't yet revealed himself to them. But this is what we're told. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Benjamin, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room, and he wept there. And after he washed his face, he came out controlling himself, said, serve the food. Now remember, Joseph was the second person, second highest person in command in the nation of Egypt, but Joseph was of Hebrew descent. He was not Egyptian, but this is what we read. They, meaning the Egyptian servants, they served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is detestable to Egyptians. So there was already this hatred of them just because they were of a different people group. There was already this understanding that, now get this, these are the people that work underneath 
the second highest person in the nation, and their thinking is, I will work for you, I'll serve food to you, but I am not going to sit down and eat with you solely because you're different than me. That's the kind of stuff that leads to hatred and violence. And then we read this. When Joseph finally gets all of his brothers there and his dad comes down uh, in Genesis 46, is what it says. Joseph said to his brothers in his father's household, I'm going to go up, speak to Pharaoh, and will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything their own. And this is how that specific brand of sheep that was in Canaan made its way into Egypt. And it wasn't there before, because as we're about to read, he says, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So the Egyptians already had a hatred for the Israelites because they were different, different people group. And they had a hatred for them because of what they did. This was before they even got to know them. That hatred then was added fear once they began to outnumber them. So they enslaved them to demean them and to break their spirit. Now, uh, we, we, we can't continue without talking about slavery for a little bit to make sure that we understand when the Bible talks about slavery, it talks about it in a number of ways, okay? Uh, slavery, uh, in general, when you talk about slavery, uh, there's, there's a couple of ways that slavery is motivated most of the time no matter what, slavery is always motivated by money. Bottom line, always motivated by money. There's one rare instance where it's not, which is actually worse, but for the most part, it's always motivated by money. By people who think that if I, uh, sorry, there's actually money in here, before anyone rushes the stage, this is fake, okay? This is not real money. I don't roll like that. Uh, so people who think that I'm going to get rich, I'm going to get rich, if I misuse and abuse these people, take advantage of them, have them work for a low amount of money while I make a big amount of money, and it's usually against their will. So there's, there's, there's that level of slavery um, that talks about that. The, the largest, largest amount of slavery historically occurred because of war. Sorry, is a fart gun. <laughs> that I got from uh, Play It Forward Pittsburgh, because I didn't want to be up here with a real gun because that would not play well on the news. But um, Play It Forward Pittsburgh, and um, everyone should support Play It Forward Pittsburgh. All they do is collect toys and give them away for free to people. So um, by war, right? So one nation looks at another nation and says either, I want your people, your resources, or your land, and so they invade. They invade them. They take over them. Once they take over them, the winning country has three choices on what to do with all the people. Either one, you let all the people, this is now my land and my resources, you guys get out, you let them go, which is not smart because then you've got an enemy that's going to come back and attack you, right? Or two, this sounds so funny, <laughs> you kill them all, 
which is another choice they do. They, you'll read it in the Bible. You'll read it in history where nations came in. They took over another land, and they killed all the male, kept some of the women, killed all the male children, everyone, uh, and just incorporated the rest. The other option is that you take the people and you enslave them. You make them work for you against their will. They don't have any choice. So war, uh, if when, we, when you talk about like the Roman government, one of the biggest, uh, and I think we talked about this, I forget what book we were going through, uh, one of the biggest things that Rome realized is that some 40% of their population were actually people who were slaves. Some of them were slaves not by war, some of them, a lot of them by war, some of them were what was called indentured servants where people said, hey, I now have no way to make a living, so I'm going to sell myself into slavery. So I say to Gary, hey, guess what? You know what? I have this big debt to pay, or I have no way to make a living, so I'm going to come work for you, and you will pay off my debt. It's not like I'm making you know, a, a job and getting rich. I'm using it to pay off my debt. Or uh, I look and say, hey, now I'm in this nation that has overtaken my nation. I have no choice but to sell myself into slavery. I don't have enough money to hop on a boat and go to some other country. I don't have any knowledge of anyone in any other country that would accept me, so I sell myself into slavery. But whether it be by war, indentured servitude, or, or just someone uh, overtaking the nation, um, people were in bondage. And the third one, had a little bit to do, and it was still driven by money. And that's what we just read about, where because of racial hatred, which is a lot that had to do with the African-American slave trade, it wasn't just we want your resources, your human resources. It was we don't think enough of this people group to treat them like we do other nations as equals. So we're going to demean them by forcing them into bondage and America was not the only nation that did it, to come work for us. And even once the bonds were kind of lifted legally, the hatred and the fear remained, which doesn't change the heart. So when we read about this slavery, this is what they were dealing with. They were dealing with a nation that looked at them and said, hey, you're different than us. A nation that looked at them and said, hey, uh, there are more of you than us, so now we're afraid of you. And so they said, the only thing that we can do is we've got to demean them, oppress them, and enslave them. And that will ease our fear, and that will ease everything that we're going through. Right? So um, the problem is, when they did that, um, as we read, they just grew. God continued to bless them. So what they said is, hey, we're not just going to enslave you. We're going to start killing you. And they did attempted genocide based on fear and hatred. They told the midwives, hey, when, when, a, when a Hebrew baby is born, if it's a male, just kill it. And it doesn't matter what your stance on abortion is. That's what abortion is. For whatever reason... And people have different reasons. It's saying, I'm going to take this baby that's either born or in the process of being born, because that's what is happening during a nine-month pregnancy, and we're going to kill it. 
And the midwives were like, oh, we're not going to be a part of that. Because even when the government says do X or do A or do B, if we trust in God, then God will honor our actions. Because they said at the threat of death, we're not going to do it. They lied to the king, said, yeah, we tried it, it didn't work. They just, we don't get there in time to do it. And God honored them and blessed them. But then, and and I want you guys to read this to see I'm not making this up. Uh, Go down to chapter 1, verse 22. So when it didn't work with the midwives, this is what happened. Then Pharaoh gave this order to, and underline this, all his people. It was no longer, hey, midwives, go do this, keep it on the down low or anything. It was to every person who is in this nation, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And the understanding is that it was every Hebrew boy that was born. And it wasn't just, hey, midwives do it. We're going to read verses later where, where Pharaoh gives specific instructions uh, to his court or to his, his uh, wise men or to all of that. This was a national mandate to kill off a people. So imagine, you know, we we're talking last week about the ice cream truck. Ice cream truck comes, you run up to the ice cream truck with your kids and you're getting them ice cream and a lady walks up who had just had a Hebrew baby, your government responsibility was to take that baby and throw it in the river. You're standing in line at at, at Giant Eagle, you know, waiting to buy your food and a lady walks up with a newborn baby in her hand. Oh, that baby is Hebrew. Your government mandate was for you to take the baby and throw it in the river. That's what this was. And here's the thing, when hatred and fear reach that level of craziness, there is absolutely nothing that man can do to stop that. But God can. And it's not going to be the way that we envision. Uh, In chapter 2, it says this, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, that word fine, uh, most theologians believe that means not just fine like a good-looking baby, because all babies that are born are kind of wrinkled and not that good-looking. No offense to Lene, wherever she is, because she's about to have one. But uh, they're just all, you know, kind of wrinkled and and, and look the same. It's more of, um, from God's perspective, that this was the person that God chose to carry out and do his will. Uh, In the book of Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his kind of like speech before he is stoned, he says, at this juncture, Moses was born and was exceedingly beautiful in God's sight. And for three months, he was nurtured in his father's house. In the book of Hebrews, where it talks about the hall of Hebrews, it says, by trusting, excuse me, the parents of Moshe, this is the complete Jewish Bible version, Moshe is Moses, hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And it's not just talking about his appearance. It's talking about God looking at the life of a person and saying, yeah, this is exactly who I want to carry out my will. Drop down to verse 3, chapter 2. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister, that's Moses' sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter, this is important, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her slave girl, that word slave girl literally means handmaiden, and my wife and I were talking about how all these events that are going on are just kind of like shaping up like that story. It was a handmaid's tale, whole different issue. But she sent her handmaiden or her slave girl to get it. She opened it, saw the baby, he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, get this. Even when the government mandates to do things that are wrong, there are still people that can step up and do the right thing. This is Pharaoh's daughter. This is the daughter of the person who should have been all gung-ho and like, oh, that's a Hebrew baby? Off with his head. Put him back in the river, drown him, carry out the mandate. But instead, verse 7 Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, to about four or five years, most theologians believe, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And here's the thing. This, this is important. And if we were, you know, one of those churches where people yelled out amen and amen, this is where they would do it. Because God allowed the government that said, I want you to destroy these people to pay to raise, equip, and take care of the person that God was going to use to save these people. And anytime you're dealing with large contingents of fear and hatred, we can't look to the government for legislation that's going to stop it. We have to look to God for his salvation. And it's not going to look like what we want, and it may not come when we want, but we have got to trust that God knows what's best that God is going to be able to kind of make things work out in his time. And it was a long time, a long time before things worked out the way the people of Israel wanted. They suffered for a very long time. In verse 11, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, now he was in Pharaoh's house, he was a part of the Egyptian house, he had grown up learning the ways of Pharaoh, and at this time, particular juncture, he was about 40 years old. So one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. So one day he went out and said, hey, I'm going to go watch. And he knew that the people that I'm in the house with, they're not my people. The people that are suffering and hurting, those are my people. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, in verse 12, glancing this way and not seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And here's the thing. When God seeks to deliver people, God's going to use people who come from, yeah, the places that are suffering, but also who kind of know where God wants to take them to. And the, there's, there's a, a couple of verses let me share with you from... Um, They give more insight of this. Again, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, talking about Moses, said that when he was 40 years old, the thought came to him to visit his brothers, the people of Israel. And on seeing one of them being mistreated, he went to his defense and took revenge by striking down the Egyptian. And here's why he did it. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was using him to rescue them. 
So even though he had been raised in Pharaoh's house, he knew, hey, what I'm seeing is wrong. And he thought, God's using me to rescue them. And he thought, hopefully, all these other people will see that God is using me to rescue them. And the reason they didn't see it is because God wasn't using him in that way. Whenever God delivers a people, he usually takes someone from amongst the people. Throughout the book of Judges, he would take people from amongst the people. When he took Moses, he said, hey, I need someone, a beautiful person in my sight who's going to follow my will. So he took someone who was of Hebrew descent. But the only place that Moses had been was in Pharaoh's house. And that's not where God wanted to take the people. So he couldn't use Moses until Moses had spent time in the presence of God. Because if he had used Moses then, Moses would have used the only knowledge he had and took them to the only place he knew, which was to be like Pharaoh. But God said, I want you to take them from where they are, and I want them to be like me. Different and a separate people, which is why the rest of the book of Exodus talks a lot about them leaving their culture and everything behind. And the same is true because when God wanted to save humanity, he stepped down and became human. But he is the only person who could take us to where God wants because he was God in the flesh. And right now, again, we're looking at a place where uh, our nation has just gone crazy. But for us to get where God wants us to go, we can't follow this political party because it can only take us where they've been before. We can't follow this political party because they can only take us where they've been before. But if we follow God... Granted, it won't be in the time we want. It may not even be the way we want, but he can take us to where we have never been before. And that's into his presence. As a people of God who have left all of our this stuff behind and saying, we just want to go to wherever God wants to take us. So uh, as the band comes up, let me share this last verse. This is the way chapter 2 ends. After a long time, 40 years, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites were sighing and groaning because of the bondage. They kept crying, and their cry because of slavery ascended to God. That word slavery is the word bondage. They were hurting, and they were in need. And there are people in our circles of influence who are hurting, and who are in need. And so God wants to reach them and take them into his presence. And to do that, that's where we come in. Because you are a part of your family, so God can take you from your family, but you're also a member of the kingdom of God, so God can say, yeah, let's bring your family into the kingdom of God. You are a part of your workplace, so God can take you and say, yeah, let's bring you and your workplace into the kingdom of God. But it only works when we are willing to say, hey, we're going to stop. We're, gonna, we're not going to make the same mistakes we made before. We're not going to be like Moses and try to do it in our own strength. We're going to put everything in God's hands. And we're going to trust him. And we may be hurting for a while, but the place that God wants to take us is better than any place 
that we've ever been before. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your head. God, we thank you so much that uh, we could gather this morning and uh, we pray that your words, the words from your word would penetrate our hearts. That we realize that like Moses, that we cannot set people free on our own. We cannot make the changes that are needed in our nation on our own. That we need you, Lord. Pray that you allow us to not make the same mistakes of the past. To put our, our hopes and our fears in the hands of any man or any woman or any political party. But we, that we trust and we know that the way to break the grip of bondage and hatred and fear is to trust in the one who gave his life on our behalf. We know our nation is hurting right now. We know people are afraid. And when we're afraid, we make decisions that may not be in anyone's best interest. So we pray that you would call your people to fall on our knees, fall on our faces, and seek you in a way that we haven't before. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you did, please leave a comment on our webpage, crossroadsofjeffersonhills.com or our Facebook page. You can also join our Sunday celebration every Sunday at 1037 a.m. We look forward to hearing from you online or in person. Thank you and God bless.